The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 62 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, Relationship Therapist. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations with therapists and changemakers. We examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of change within ourselves and within the world around us. Dissociation can drum up quite a bit of fear in people. Truth is, we all dissociate from time to time. So what is dissociation really? From time to time, perhaps you misplace your keys or you shut down in a heated argument with your partner. But how do we know if this is a disconnection from yourself or from time and space? It turns out the clues lie in your moments of calm. This week's guest, Stacy Steinmiller, is a licensed clinical social worker in Rochester, New York. She aptly calls herself a change warrior. She's not scared to sit with her clients in their darkest spaces. She specializes in dissociation. And in this conversation, Stacy explains how dissociation starts as a useful coping mechanism to stress and trauma when things start to go awry, and how practicing both calm and pleasant emotions are the key to finding agency when confronted with the negative ones. Let's dive in. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Rebecca. I'm so happy to have you here with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We're going to talk today about such an important conversation because I really believe that this is something that every single one of our clients in therapy and every single one of us as humans deals with. We're talking about dissociation, and mm-hmm. I know this is one of your, your expertise. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to bring us in and maybe give, give us a little definition so that we can all understand what dissociation is and let us know a little bit about how this became something that you specialize in. Sure. So, um, so actually first I'll start with the second question, um, lead in. So I got trained in EMDR in 2013. And the reason why I got EMDR training was a colleague recommended it and I was noticing I wasn't getting the results with my clients as I was hoping. And I was feeling kind of stuck in working in an agency at the time. A lot of rhetoric around just symptom management, not actually healing. And that was really disturbing to me. That might sound like a strong word. Um, But that's not what I wanted to do as a therapist. I didn't want to just like help people manage. And I really wanted people to heal. So, um, so that brought me into my EMDR training, which as most people know is, you know, specialization for trauma, although you can use it for many things. Um, but that's really what got me into understanding working with trauma. For our listeners who aren't maybe therapists and don't have the knowledge base, EMDR stands for? High movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. (laughs) It's the reprocessing that I always lose. (laughs) Uh, and and basically, it's a form of therapy mm-hmm. that helps one to reprocess trauma through a series of 
eye movements type yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like steps. It's a protocol that focuses on a single event. So you focus on the image, the negative belief about the event, the emotion, and um, body sensation. And it works on, it, bas- it heals the maladaptive information and brings in adaptive information. So uh, if something bad happened, you might have a belief of I'm worthless, and that would be the maladaptive information, and then it might bring in something more adaptive, such as like I'm strong. Um, And so it helps you to see the event, I want to say with more clarity or with such, with not having that negative lens of self judgment around it. And so then that takes away a lot of the symptoms that come as a result. So I kind of stumbled into that. And it happened to be that the trainer here in Rochester, New York, where I live, who does the training, her dissociation is her specialty. And she incorporates um, a decent amount of dissociation training in her basic training which not a lot of other EMDR consultants do. So, uh, so she stressed the importance of learning how to treat dissociation with treating clients with complex trauma, which is not a single event trauma. So complex trauma is usually childhood trauma, trauma that happens over prolonged periods of time, consistently. So things like having relational traumas. Yeah, so exactly. So kind of getting into the attachment stuff. So yeah, so it can be with caregivers. Um, Those would be more likely to manifest as a complex trauma versus a single event trauma, which is life's been great. And then all of a sudden something really super shitty happened to you. Like a car accident. Yeah. So like we can hold those different kinds of events in different ways. Something that happened one time, an earthquake, a trauma, something, a fire, something along those lines. EMDR as a standalone protocol can be really, really helpful for. Yes. And if the trauma that we're dealing with is an attachment or a relational trauma that's happened over a prolonged period of time, EMDR as a standalone protocol might have some holes in it and something that has that holds a space for how to work with dissociation yes is needed yes so exactly so So that helps i think um, maybe this opens up a door where we need to talk about what dissociation is yeah yeah so okay so now we're into dissociation so Mm -hmm. like we're saying so we're looking at more complex trauma especially things that happen in childhood so when we're children we often feel powerless or are powerless over a lot of situations and one way a very amazing way our brain deals with things that happen that are overwhelming when we're younger is to not be present Um, when those things are happening or kind of like hide away in our brain somewhere or we push the event into our subconscious and kind of like, I'm not going to ever remember this happening or to some level say that that didn't happen to me. We, We move the experience so far away from us 
that's dissociating, disconnecting from what has happened, disconnecting ourselves from that. So there's usually some level of um, non-realization and non-personalization not happening to me. But this is really where it, where it starts is really a coping skill. Yes. So it's starting from a place of something is happening. It is bigger than what I can manage. I don't have the skills or the tools to regulate myself or to soothe myself or to leave the situation. Yes. And so I go to a place, a different place within myself where my consciousness can, can allow me to escape. Exactly. Yep. And it's a great, amazing coping skill and it helps many people to survive and things would be too overwhelming without it. You know, I'm just, I, I, I'm a little bit of a geek. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mind just went to like, you've read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? Yes, I love Okay. That. I love that book too. It, it's formational for me. And he talks in there very clearly about living through a traumatic event and imagining himself lecturing a group of students in the future. And I'm thinking that is such a great example of dissociation, mm-hmm. of yeah. functional disfo- dissociation. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it's important to know that, yeah, it's functional. It's normal. We all do it to an extent. So kind of thinking about that on that continuum. And so it's a really difficult topic to bring up because um, people that understand a little bit about what dissociation is knows that that's the cornerstone of dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. So bringing it up brings up a lot of heated feelings. One, that a lot is not recognized in the field. And two, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the worst diagnosis ever. And are you saying I have multiple personalities? I'm not crazy. And so, so that's good to stress the, the functional aspect of it um, because we tend to go to like the extreme dysfunctional aspect of it when we talk about it. Um, so that's that continuum, which is really important to keep in mind. When it shows up in your office, when, when people show up in your office and they are more severely dissociated, where it's mm-hmm. inha- inhibiting their functioning, yeah. what is it looking like there? So it might be looking like clients um, not remembering stuff, but this is different than like not necessarily like remembering where your keys are. It's okay to forget our keys. (laughs) Right. So maybe missing really important information in life or they have like gaps of time or they don't remember a whole lot in childhood. And I know sometimes people are like, well, I don't, that was so long ago. I don't remember. But usually once you start poking around, people's memories start coming back. People with dissociation, even with some poking around, there might be some gaps or things missing. They sometimes, you know, a higher level might even get disoriented coming to my office and not just the first time or if they've been coming a lot and they get disoriented. So yeah, so you're kind of looking for like a loss of time and space and, you know, what's real, what's not real and some confusion there. As I'm saying these things, I'm 
trying to show some of the severity, but at the same time, all these things can be very common too. Mm -hmm. So it's more the constellation of how they show up rather than the what, because the what is something that each of us walking through our daily lives may experience from time to time. Right. Exactly. So yeah. So how, yeah. How often is this happening? Is it becoming a problem in your life? Is it getting in the way of your relationships? Is it getting in the way of your work? Yeah. 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 So, and that's when people start to realize that what used to be a coping skill is starting to become a problem. That's how I kind of see all mental health issues in general are coping skills gone haywire or something or being overused or oh, this, it's, yeah, it's just not working anymore. The bandwidth has just gone out. So, Stacy, when this is showing up in your office in regards to more complex trauma, and I'm, I'm gathering here, you know, from just from the way that I see this showing up, very often I'll be working with a couple maybe or an individual and we'll be touching on something that, it, it just, it has that flavor of overwhelm. Mm. It's just going a little too much. And this is probably a really great opportunity for us to slow things down or to take a time out. But oftentimes, someone who's dissociating might not be able to put that into words and at the same time, outwardly may not show what's happening. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So a lot of the work that, that I'm noticing without the same level of training that you have, is, you know, my work is to notice when they're having these moments. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious if maybe this is a a good place for us to maybe start this conversation. How do you help people notice for themselves when they're having this dissociated kind of experience? How do you recognize it in the room and how do you help others to recognize it too? Definitely. That's a good question. And probably one of the hardest parts of the treatment is, because like I said, there's so much uh, phobia around some of this language and so forth and the severity of it, it's hard to bring up. So so, one, so when you asked me that question, one of the, the first thing that popped in my mind was the difference between being calm and being shut down mm. or being calm and being numb. So I will ask my clients what that difference is. And for them. Yes. Yeah. I'll be like, what's the, you know, difference between, well, those, maybe they'll tell me about a scenario that they think is a calming situation, like watching TV. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds pretty calming. Then I'll start to kind of poke around a little more to find out, are they really calm and engaged with what they're doing? Or are they numbing out and shutting down and they're not really paying attention to the show? Mm, So attention. Attention is... Okay. Yeah. Because with dissociation, you're disconnected. You can be shut down. So I might use something as simple as watching TV, like as a gateway into exploring what's calm, what's shut down, and see if I can get my clients to describe the difference between, well, how are you when you're calm? Describe to me how you are when you're calm, you know, and really getting a good situation of when they're really calm to uh, how they are when they're shut down. And just like helping them 
reflect on those differences mm-hmm. seems to be really like a really helpful way of bringing to light of, oh, you know, I might be shutting down more than I realize. Someone who's more dissociated, might they have trouble finding calm? Very much so. Very much so. So that's the cornerstone or like the beginning work of with everybody that I see for the most part, depending on where they're at, what they need, is working on developing calming skills and positive affect tolerance. So being able to tolerate positive affect. Um, What does that mean exactly? I, I guess kind of thinking about it as a way to like exercise feelings to allow yourself to feel. Because when we shut down negative affect, we also shut down the positive stuff too. And um, allowing ourselves to engage in positive affect can sometimes be feel threatening or um, vulnerable or opening ourselves up too much. So, so it's helping clients that are really struggling in this area. It's a lot of doses of, you know, things that they, what did you do this week that was enjoyable? Um, and you're going here before you're working on other regulation skills. You're yeah. going to enjoying the positive first. You're wanting to make sure that they can tolerate that. Yeah. Or you're bringing in the more traumatic, negative exactly. stuff that's going to overwhelm them. Right. Because how are you going to deal with a flashback or something if you can't even tolerate being in a positive affect state? So, you know, clients that a good way to test their ability to be in that state is kind of asking them, well, what's something that went well this week? You know, some will say like nothing, you know, so you got to like poke around a little bit and get them to find something. And then they might start talking about it. And then it's the blah, and then they go into like something negative. So you kind of let them go back into the negative because that's how they're regulating their mood is staying in that negative state. Because that's just like mm-hmm. a level of comfort. So then, you know, you let them kind of go down that road for a little bit. And then you slowly bring them back to the positive, you know, and see if they can tolerate that a little bit longer. And you're kind of, you're, you're, you're titrating this a little bit. Yeah. You're trying yeah. to get them to last in that positive space longer yes. and longer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so then once clients are able to um, allow themselves to be in that, positive feeling state that gives them more agency to be able to bring them from a negative feeling state to a positive feeling state to feel more control over their mood or feelings or so forth you know so if you're getting triggered now you have more agency to be able to use other coping skills you know that we bring in but I think what gets missed a lot without that framework Mm-hmm. of dissociation, the whole working on increasing the positive affect tolerance gets missed, I think. Yeah. And, um, and clients are like, well, why can't I get calm? It's because you, you need training to get calm. If, if you were brought up in a household where there wasn't calm, you never learned how to be calm. You didn't learn what calm was. You just, you only, you're learning how to react and how to people please and how to just do what you need to do to get by that, you know, so it's like if you, you never learned how to become, you, you got to kind of get taught how to become. And so I guess that's kind of part of 
that that treatment is learning how to be calm and tolerating being calm and that nothing bad's going to happen if you allow yourself to be calm. Oh, so important. <laughs> Such a life skill, right? Yeah. And it's sadly not a skill that everybody has. Right. And, and yeah, it's not like valued by society either. So you're not like usually getting encouraged to exercise your calm state because we're go, 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 productivity, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and I think so many of us are raised by people who are raised by people who are raised by people who never had the opportunity to learn what calm was. And yeah. it's even more so now in this digital age. Right. Yeah. It's just, you're getting bombarded so much. And yeah, it's, or like, you know, a long time ago too, it's some of the, your chores were some calming or mindful, or, you know, you might be knitting or making things or, I don't know, turning butter or whatever. Those can be like mindful and calming and, you know, we're um, bombarded by information. And so it's like, we also don't, use those daily activities that I think we're probably regulating for people at some point. Very much so. I, I'm uh, thinking my daughter, my, my oldest, just had a, a trip to a local farm camp mm. and they were th this, uh, some overnights and she came back and she taught us all how to make butter. Oh, and so <laughs> I'm just thinking about this and I'm thinking she came home and one of the first things she said to me when I picked her up was, I want more chores. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think you're onto something with this. You know, I, um, I think there is something about labor. Yesterday, it's like the last day in February. This may not be airing in March, but this is still where we are right now. And I was out raking leaves for like an hour because our property is just so many leaves. And it was the most calming experience I have allowed myself to have in quite a while. Awesome. I was just in a rhythm of raking leaves and mm. the repetition of it was so incredibly soothing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you use the word allowing yourself to. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's the important <laughs> part is, is the allowing and that's getting, yeah, that tolerance to allow that and be with that. And so then you're practicing being present versus um, shutting down and removing yourself. Yeah. And I think this is, this is something that all of us can really use some help becoming more conscious of. Yes. So I'm hoping that that's where we go a little deeper into in this conversation, the, the how. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I guess that brings me to my example I was telling you about earlier. Uh, to normalize the experience, um, there's been times, you know, upon reflection and especially learning about all this stuff. And of course, all the therapists that listen, you know, can definitely relate to like the more you learn about all this stuff, the more um, problems you realize you have and all of the things that you <laughs> The more you diagnose do. yourself. <laughs> right. And you're like, oh, I have all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> so there's, there are a lot of studies that point to the fact that many therapists and healers do come into this work because of our wounds. Mm -hmm. And also it's in learning about how to tend to our wounds that we become such gifted healers. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes it's more obvious and sometimes it's less obvious. So, and then there's also just learning about this stuff, like in order to relate to it, you 
kind of have to think about it in the relationship with yourself because that's what we know. So then we're just all so more apt to like, oh yeah, that's me or, oh, I've done that. Or that's just human nature. We input information and we have to relate it to ourselves because that's our frame of reference. So in learning about a lot of this stuff, I've become more aware of how, how and when I shut down emotionally and um, what that experience can be like and how if I'm uncomfortable and in a situation that's eliciting uncomfortable emotions that I do not want to show, mm-hmm. I can do a really good job of hiding that and pushing that away to the point of realizing that it's sometimes hard to recall what actually happened during that time. And it's like, oh, well, I was really disconnected. Oh, well, I really had to disconnect in order to not show emotion because that felt, I'm going to use the word unsafe mm-hmm. to me. And when I use the word unsafe or safe, I'm not talking about, you know, I was in some like situation where I was going to get harmed physically or whatever. It was not feeling in that safe place to be vulnerable. It wasn't, didn't feel of my choosing to be vulnerable or I was not in the mood to be vulnerable or whatever that is. So I think that safe word can be used in this context. So if you're not feeling in a safe place to allow those emotions and be emotional, uh, we shut it down and to the point of not connecting. And then that's when um, things become foggy. And this shows up in relationships with people and partners and families. And um, because something really deep is getting triggered, mm-hmm. uh, like attachment and becomes overwhelming. And so we just emotionally shut down. And then it's hard to sometimes come back to those conversations. It's like, oh, I, I said that or I did that or I don't remember you saying that. <laughs> That's where the dissociation starts to not be our coping skill anymore. That's where it starts to get in the way. Exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, this is becoming a problem because so think about it. If you have complex trauma and you're trying to manage these relationships, usually with your parents of they're the people you have to attach to to get your needs met. But then you're also at the same time trying to emotionally detach to not get hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like this play of like attaching and detaching. And then, then that gets played out in your adult relationships. And then it becomes problematic. But you had to do that to survive because you couldn't be like, see, I'm going to go home now and like read a book, you know, like maybe you could go to your room, but even some people didn't have that luxury. Maybe they were followed to the room and they're still getting screamed at or, you know, um, so you just, you have to do the best you can as a kid and then you're. Or as an adult, depending on when it happens. (laughs) Yeah. And as an adult (laughs) and um, (laughs) yeah. So then it's like, oh, wait, Oh, now I'm with this partner and I want to, in order to have this fulfilling relationship, I need to be 
emotionally intimate, which is vulnerable, which means I have to feel all my feelings and I have to communicate my feelings and be with my feelings. And if you're used to detaching from your feelings, then, oh, now I'm having all these relationship problems. You know, I'm, I'm just having a random thought. It may go nowhere. And that's okay. It can fall and it can fall and we can let it go. But I just started a new series on this podcast on highly sensitive people. Mm. And I'm just musing and wondering, like, as we're talking right now, if there's a connection between highly sensitive people and dissociation, that could the feelings themselves, until we learn how to sit in them and learn, until we learn how to experience them and, and, how to be with all of the feelings and maybe even what feelings we need to let ourselves not tend to and what feelings mm-hmm. we allow ourselves to be with that dissociation is is perhaps a way of dealing with that sensitivity mm-hmm. when it becomes yeah. to be too much yeah um it could be so i am definitely not an expert with highly sensitive people i've done some reading on it, but I also, I don't identify myself as a highly sensitive person. But like I said, I tend to, I'm more the one to, I can close off a lot of emotions, but that's not to say it doesn't affect me. And so then it comes to like, well, what does that even mean? Like, well, maybe I am more sensitive, but maybe I'm not. Or So that's an area that I don't know as much about, but I've definitely seen it. I do have clients that do identify with that. Yeah, these emotions can be overwhelming. I guess you could call it highly sensitive. Or maybe another way I think maybe I look at it is, well, I was taught that these emotions are not okay. So I've learned to not to try and avoid feeling them. And any ounce of feeling them feels like way too much. Or, you know, so is it that I can't handle these feelings? Or I feel like taught that I not supposed to have these feelings. Yeah, so. it, goes, it goes back in some ways to unlearning everything we're taught and relearning who we are. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's going so much of how we all move through this world is programmed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. You should be this way. You shouldn't be that way. You should feel this. You shouldn't feel that. Those feelings aren't real. These are. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Yeah. It can get really confusing. So, so with like treating dissociation, I do parts work. So we're working with parts of self. And again, this isn't like different personas or necessarily like different personalities. I guess, you know, if you're working with DID, it looks a little different, but most of what I see is not full DID. So we work with the different parts of ourself to work on our internal conflicts and looking at ourselves with curiosity versus judgment. You know, part of me feels this way. Part of me feels that way. Part of me wants this. Part of me wants that. Part of me thinks this. Part of me thinks that. And um, I really just like the framework of... It's a way of holding both. Not having to be this or that, but being this and that. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You, you talk about that a lot. Um, and I talk about that a lot in my sessions and how can both be true, you know, um, cause that's usually a huge new concept for people. Um, and how do we, you know, how can by honoring both 
usually can come to some type of resolve or understanding of self um, and working through those internal conflicts. You know, there's there's a few more things that are just jumbling around in my mm-hmm. brain right now. So if it's okay for me to share them with yeah. you. One of the first things I'm thinking of is so much of this work is about coming into one's identity to understanding oneself, mm-hmm. right? And then along with that, I'm kind of thinking of like the the true self versus the false self, mm. right? Like um, we we develop this false self to please the people around us, to fit in, to belong. And mm-hmm. then there's who we are. And so, so much of this parts work is about working through these places of dissociation where we've taken on this false self, where we've become something else or hid away parts of who we are mm-hmm. to come back to ourselves. Yeah. 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 So it's, you know, by looking at it, you know, it, hel- it helps bring that to more of our awareness. And like you're saying, so, you know, one part you said about like pleasing others or whatever. So then, you know, in working with that, what I work with my clients is understanding, well, why do you please others? That that coping scale, so we're going to go back to that coping scale, was very useful in maybe keeping a stable household when you were a kid. If you got really good at pleasing mom or dad and that prevented conflict or something bad from happening, you this was a coping skill to please others so that things remained stable, you know, and you might be coming into therapy and you're, your people pleasing has now become a problem. And you're like, you know, I can't get anywhere, you know, with work because people are stepping all over me and I'm doing everything for everyone and it's not getting acknowledged and, or something like that. Or I don't know, it's usually like you're giving, giving, you don't get anything in return. Um, but then it's kind of understandable. Why do I do that? Well, you did that basically for survival. That's how you kept things calm when you were younger. So when you can look at that with curiosity and understanding, it's like, oh, and then it's, oh, wait, no, it's 2018 now. I, I, don't, I don't need to keep people happy because it's not an actual threat to self anymore. When you're a kid, it actually feels like a threat to self. But it, then it's like, oh, like I'm an adult now. I'm I, not in that situation. So that's how then we can get uh, out of that understanding why we developed it, you know, where it came from, what its purpose was, understanding that with compassion and realizing I don't have to run that script anymore. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) It's just because it's true. And I think this is true for every single one of us. We all have scripts that we don't have to run anymore. Yeah. 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 And it's hard to look at those scripts. It's, it takes a lot of tolerance yeah. to be able to sit with them and to, to see why they're faulty or why they're not serving us, especially when we've been relying on them. Yep. And then when we can go there and feel it, then that's where that healing is because it was the stuff that we couldn't feel then because it felt too threatening. And, and that's where, um, you know, you're moving through and that's where maybe the, you can jump in with the EMDR reprocessing and stuff. Um, now, now you have this awareness, you're understanding it, you're becoming more present 
now I can tolerate feeling these feelings. So, but also as, as I'm hearing you talk about this now, as you're talking about this more complex use of EMDR in this capacity, you've mm-hmm. done a lot of the other work first about being able to tolerate and sit with all the feelings. Exactly. So now when you're doing the EMDR, it might even be a single episode in some way because you're, you're reprocessing this particular thought pattern. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes more simplified. So I know not all clinicians function that way. They might jump into some reprocessing and do special protocols or jump in with all these things. Um, But I guess I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just not how I was trained. So how I was trained is to do all this work with the dissociation up front. So by the time they can tolerate the feelings and get through it, you kind of run through it more easily because their tolerance level, you still might need to stop more often with a client that's more dissociative than one that is not, you know, so you might have to still do things a bit differently, but you did like the hard work up front and now you can kind of run through things uh, more ease and then they feel the benefit to the EMDR because you, you need to be in it for that therapy to be effective. So if you're not fully present, if part of you is not in the room or your emotions are shut down, then then EMDR is not going to work. Well, a lot of therapies aren't going to work. Any therapy is not going to work. So, and so that's the other thing. So you don't necessarily have to use EMDR to work through the feelings. You can use psychodynamic therapy to work through. You can use any therapy at that point then to work through the feelings because that's what all therapies do, you know, I think to an extent, or maybe not all of them, but, you know, I guess. I, I love this though, Stacey. I, I love one of the things that you're talking about is, and I don't think you use these particular words, but to kind of like find your pleasure places mm, yeah, and, yeah. and, and to, to notice, to bring attention to your capacity to stay with those experiences, the good mm-hmm. ones, right? Yeah. And build that up like a muscle. Yep. Before doing the other work. Yep. Yep. And it's kind of like, I think on an intuitive level, I probably knew this, but <laughs> you might be the first person who's like confirming this for me in this capacity. Mm. And it's kind of blowing my mind in a beautiful <laughs> way. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's like explicitly stating it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I think I really liked when I started getting trained and learning more about this, how to work this way is kind of like you just said, like things that I think I've always thought in my mind or kind of knew there was another way to go about things. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's like really resonates with me. Almost like, yeah, yeah. I think that same experience of, oh, yeah, that's that, that's that's how. So, so that's the other thing. Different therapies resonate with different clinicians. I guess I just feel like I found what makes most sense to me. And I feel like it's less pathologizing than a lot of than other ways to look at stuff. So we're looking at things from a lens of trauma, attachment, relationships is a lot less pathologizing than something like there's just something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, because right. yeah, in most cases, something not so great probably happened to you right. or you didn't have the skills or tools to know how to deal with it. But that doesn't mean that it's you that something's the matter with. Exactly. So that's what I really like about it is, um, is yeah, I, I find it to be 
you know, so I guess my slogan or whatever is shit happens. Like, you know, if something happens, I say shit happens. And, you know, we don't have control over a lot of shit that happens to us. And we just kind of have to work through that in a way that it doesn't, you know, bring us down in the fact of like how we see ourselves and believe ourselves to be. And it doesn't change our worth. You know, I'll ask my clients, you know, so at what age did you, you know, lose your worth or something? Like, does that happen at a certain age? I'm kind of sarcastic sometimes, you know, and or or if, you know, maybe I won't do it about themselves if that might seem like too much. It depends on their where they're at. I'll be like, okay, what at what age does a kid have to earn his or her worth? What what it like is what birthday does that happen at? You know? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. It depends, like I said, the relationship with the client. You know, like like these questions, you know, help people realize like, oh, like, yeah, do you does that to you know it it kind of blows them away of, you know, oh, I don't really lose that or do I have to earn that? Or, you know, we're inherently worthy, you know, it helps to get them thinking about some of those concepts that just are completely new. I love it. I love it. I love this conversation. I could talk about dissociation with you, I think, for for a long time. Yeah. 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 I'm really enjoying how much normalcy we're bringing to this conversation around dissociation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I like that too. And I'm sitting here thinking maybe I'm being too normal with it. Should I be less normal with it? But, you know, I think it definitely shows up as a problem in places, but even there, especially there, there's even more of a need to work with this from the perspective of how much positive affect can they tolerate? Yeah. Right. And to build up those skills. So, we still don't want to take too much of a pathological approach to dealing with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's necessary. And um, yeah. So once you can get back past the language of trauma, dissociation, et cetera, then it feels non-pathologizing, but it's weird that those words are kind of like sometimes the most pathologizing, (laughs) the most scary ones to address. So I try and, address them without necessarily using those words. Yeah, I appreciate that. Stacy. thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to leave with our listeners or do you want to just let them know how they can find you? I'm I'm in Rochester, New York, and my website is ascounseling.com. And that stands for Authentic Self. And (laughs) if, if I can have my way one of these days... Stacy will launch a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I got the equipment here that I'm using, but I've decided to just see lots of clients instead. I guess. <laughs> well, you're you're incredibly busy these days, but one day I think your voice is needed out here in the podcast world. So do keep your eye out for her, at least as a guest on other shows. Yeah, that's a nice happy medium. And thanks for reminding me that. There is a part of me that really wants to be out there more and doing other things and getting being locked up in my office all day, every day. Well, I think it's, you know, it's challenging because you're doing such amazing work in your office every day. So 
It's fulfilling for sure. Stacy, thank you again for being with us. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about this conversation and it, of course, makes me think more about where my mind has been going a lot lately. And that's that throughout our lives, we are constantly conforming and inhibiting our truest natures. And then we go on this quest trying to remember our deepest knowings, trying to connect back to our intuition, trying to re reintegrate our fragmented parts. That's what we're talking about when we talk about dissociation and we're talking about how to come back to the self. I'm, I'm launching this month in April 2018 an online wild women discussion group. We're going to be joining together once a month for six consecutive months and journeying together in remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. We're going to help each other reawaken the creative wildness that lives inside of our souls, our truest natures. We're remembering together a deep wisdom that reintegrates our belief in ourselves as wild women and brave men, the change makers. Learn more at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. In addition to my relationship therapy practice in New York, I also mentor and consult with therapists and kick-ass change-making professionals. If that sounds like you, there's a link to click in the show notes to learn more. You can also join our community on Facebook or find us on social media at Pobscast. I always love hearing from you, so I also invite you to send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris, Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope you enjoyed the show, and will join us next week for another episode of The Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness.